Welcome to the In the Scriptures podcast. The following Bible lesson was previously recorded. You have to bear with me. I didn't have that reading time to get all wired up a little bit. That's okay. Do what? <laughs> we'll be turning, if you will, to Philippians 4. We're going to read our text for today from Philippians 4 to begin the lesson. We've been looking at the work of the church um, according to the scriptures, and uh, I've really enjoyed uh, presenting this series. And my, my folder has gotten thicker and thicker as this has gone on. I said to Mariah this morning, I th- I've got enough, I think, to write a book. So, and then I was like, but I don't know when I'd find time to do that. So, uh, anyway, there's, there's been so much that uh, I've enjoyed studying in regard to this series, just trying to get down to the basics, if you will, of what the New Testament says that the church locally is to do. Uh, and in our evening sessions, we have, I think, enjoyed kind of expounding on that a little bit and talking about some of the issues that have arisen and uh, some of the kind of deeper uh, points maybe to be made. Uh, I've tried as best I can in the the main sermon part to really just lay it out there of what the Scripture says to the local church. And so uh, we're going to do that again today. And, and if you're looking at the outline today, you may think, well, this is a little bit of a repeat. And to some degree, you're right. We've already talked about the work of preaching the gospel and the preacher's work, if you will. Uh, but we've really talked about that from the perspective of at the local congregation. And what we're going to talk about today uh, is a little different in the, the work of the, the church to uh, support the preaching of the gospel. And the supporting of the preaching of the gospel, thinking beyond this locale into other places. Uh, remember what our Lord told His disciples before leaving. He said, go into all the world, and preach the gospel, right? To every creature, to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28, the very end of the chapter. And so that great commission there was given to His disciples But then as we go in further in the New Testament writings, we find that that great commission was being taught by the apostles, practiced by the apostles, and that it's local churches that were supporting this effort. And that's what we're going to really look at today. So in Philippians chapter 4, to give you a little bit of background before we read this text, remember that it's over in the book of Acts. You might kind of hold your finger there and come with me over to the book of Acts, and I'll just kind of mention this quickly. But in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 25, we find Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, do you remember where they were? They were at Philippi. And it is the Philippian jailer, remember, that is ready to fall on his sword and die when... He wakes up and sees all the prison doors open. And as we read there uh, in verse 30, the Philippian jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. So here's the Philippian jailer and his household that become Christians. They respond to the gospel preached to them by Paul and Silas. And this, by all indications, is the beginning of the church at Philippi. And when we come to Philippians chapter 4, it's, it's roughly some ten years later at this point. And much has happened in regard to missionary journeys and work of establishing churches and so forth. But during this time, uh, Paul has had the opportunity to be helped by the church at Philippi. And that's what he's talking about at the end of chapter 4, uh, beginning at about verse 10. So I want to read verses 10 through 20 with that background in mind. This is Paul talking to these Christian brethren at this local church, Philippi, about what they had done in helping him. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to God, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, often when this text is preached on or taught on, uh, verse 13 is a center point of reference. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is a great message and a great statement. Maybe far less do us preachers do a good job of pointing out the context of that. And that is that Paul, a preacher, is writing to Christians at a local church who have helped him. And he is in a state now where he himself is imprisoned. He's writing this from prison. And it's kind of interesting that a guy in prison says, I can do all things. <laughs> because in reality, there was very little he could do. And so you must read this in that context and understand that Paul is really stating that what Christ, what God would have him do, he has been able to do. All of it. And we can learn a great lesson from that. You know, are we always going to be able to do everything we want to do? No. Are we going to do everything we dream of? No. But our limitations are not God's limitations. 
And so what we need to do is, I think, see what Paul saw. And Paul saw that even with the limitations and the struggles and the afflictions and the persecutions and the setbacks and all of the other things that happened, Paul was still successful in the work of the Lord. And that wasn't because of him. That was because of the Lord. And he's given credit also to these Philippian brethren because they had helped in that. They had done what they could. Notice he makes the statement... Uh, that they cared for him, that they shared, and we're going to go through some of these statements they make individually, but the point is, he's pointing out that yes, he could do all things through Christ, but you can't cast aside recognizing the situation he's in. You might read this and not know any of that background and think, man, Paul must have just had it going on until somebody says, hey, by the way, he's in prison. And then you're like, what? Well, now this doesn't make sense. So in order to make sense of it, we have to see it through the eyes of the Lord. Was the gospel being preached? Yes. Were people becoming disciples? Yes. Was the work of the kingdom going on unchained? Yes. And in all of those things, he was doing the things that Christ can strengthen to do. One of the key statements to note in this that I want you to kind of hang on to is when he says, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. We're going to hold on to that uh, key statement because it's going to become part of really understanding what the local church is to do uh, when it comes to this. If we get down to the nuts and bolts of it, well, how does this work? That's going to be a key statement. But I want to go through several of these key phrases in this text because all of them teach us something. First of all, he says that you care for me. Your care for me. There in verse 10. At last, your care for me has flourished again. And that again indicates something too. This has been an ongoing thing between he and the church at Philippi. But there was a care there for Paul as a preacher of the gospel. And he says, again, flourished again, indicating it's been an ongoing thing, a multiple time thing. And we're going to see that in a couple of the other phrases as well. Notice that, that statement about opportunity. You know, they, they had lacked opportunity at one point in time. And commentators and different religious scholars debate on exactly what he's talking about. I don't know that I can answer that. Remember, this is some span of 10 years that has happened where it started with that Philippian jailer in his household. Paul, you know, ended up leaving there, going to other places and establishing churches. And, you know, I'm guessing that early on there might not have been the wherewithal organization, may not have had elders in place yet. You know, that was something that also they went back to do. There just might have been a number of reasons that they cared about Paul, but they didn't have the opportunity or the know-how, means, etc., you know, to help support him taking care of these necessities that he talks about. Okay? Right, so I don't know the exact answer, but I think we can, in our mind's eye, we can imagine that there could have been reasons. It could have been, you know, Epaphroditus is mentioned here as the messenger in between. Well, maybe they just were having a hard time connecting, you know? Maybe it was weather-related. You know, I mean, there's just any number of things that could have been the case that prevented it at certain times, but now he's recognizing what had happened. And that could happen with us. You know, we might be looking for opportunities, and they're just not there right now for whatever reason to help support the preaching of the gospel. Notice the statement there. He says, you have done well. 
Now, he, he talks about, that's in verse 14. In verses 11 and 12, he kind of gives this dissertation about knowing how to be content. To be content even if you had nothing, content as having an abounding amount. But, you know, his message ultimately is that contentment is what, you know, is to be achieved. And yet, you know, you could think then the Philippians might say, well, are you telling us, Paul, we don't need to give you anything? You know, are you telling us that this was a waste, you know, that we sent aid to you? And so he real quickly kind of nullifies that in verse 14 when he says, you have done well that you shared in my distress. You have done well. This was a good thing. This was a good thing. Message to us as a local church is that this is an example worth following. This is an example worth following. They did well in this. He makes that statement, you shared in my distress. Now, I don't know exactly what he's talking about, but had Paul been through a number of distresses? Well, certainly. There have been definitely times in which he had distresses through persecution, shipwreck, you know, traveling. There were just a number of ways, uh, being in prison. You know, there were just all those things that there were plenty of opportunities where somebody would have been, man, Paul's having it rough. You know, what can we do to help? And it would appear that the Philippian brethren had that mindset and had made the effort to help, to share in his distress. He also says that no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. He makes that real pointed statement. Now, that right there is a mouthful. And there has been debate and controversy and all kinds of stuff among churches that has sprung up over this. And you may not even be aware of it. And I don't know that I'm as fully aware of it as I need to be. But I'm aware enough of it to know that that statement right there and a couple of the ones that follow here have been statements of controversy in so many ways. But what he says is really clear. He just is making the point that at one point in time, who was the main church that was helping him out? Philippi. And he's thankful for that. That's how he started all this. He's thankful for that. And we'll come back to this bigger picture issue in a moment. So the other thing to notice here is he says, even in Thessalonica, so in verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again. So, this gives us an indication that they weren't giving Paul help for Paul to do something in Philippi or even right there around Philippi. They were giving Paul help in a, in a foreign place, in a distant place, in Thessalonica. And what else do we know about Thessalonica? There was a church there. Okay? So that's also kind of eye-opening. It wasn't that there was no gathering of Christians in Thessalonica. There was, but there still was a need. Okay, there's still a need. He says, you send aid once and again for my necessities. That's kind of a key statement in all of this when we think about the work of the local church. So what were the brethren at Philippi really doing for Paul? What were they really seeing to in their support of the preaching of the gospel? Well, it's pretty vague in this. But when you combine the statement that he made about giving and receiving, which in that day and time would have been a, a monetary reference, okay? Um, just like we might talk about like credits and debits, 
You know, that's, that's a banking terminology. Um, we, we, we like to see more credits than we do debits, right? So giving and receiving, that's, that's that kind of mentality. In other words, somebody's giving, somebody's receiving. There's an out and an in kind of deal. And then in, he, in this case, when he says you sent aid, that's a key word, aid, once and again, a multiple time thing, and it was for necessities. So it, it wasn't to make him rich. It wasn't to build a bank account or something like that. It wasn't for Paul to disperse abroad himself in this context at all. It was directly to Paul for his aid and his necessities. Okay? Now that still encompasses a pretty broad range, but, but it's pretty specific in and of itself. He also said that the fruit that abounds to your account. So it's easy, I think, for a local congregation who sends... Uh, funds or aid to a preacher in a foreign place, in a different place, to feel disconnected from that. You know, if, if in the local work here, for instance, right here at Sandlin Road, if we go out in this community and we make a lot of effort to, to preach the gospel and to study with people and to bring people to Christ, you know, we would have the expectation that we would see them among us, potentially. You know, that they would worship with us here, that they would serve the Lord with us here. And so we would see that fruit among us. You know, that would be right here. But it's easy to see how you would feel disconnected when the work is going on elsewhere. But what Paul's saying here is that we really shouldn't feel disconnected. And he doesn't want them to feel disconnected. He wants them to know about the fruit that abounds to their account. It's a worthy work. So don't you think about it this way. I mean, wouldn't we feel great knowing that the, the help that we gave someone meant that a group of Christians in a foreign place maybe went from just a couple of people to a handful of people to a dozen people? I mean, you know, you, you think about it, a small group of people, you know, you can double and it not be a huge number, but make a big difference. And it's easy for us to disconnect from that, but you think about somebody in a foreign place and, and the work may be hard and whatever help they can have to get things done there. And even, and I mean, what, what do we read Jesus saying? There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So we need to see it as fruit nonetheless, whether it's right here among us or not. It's fruit. It's the kingdom. It's the kingdom. It's a group of people that if we happen to be in their neck of the woods, we could drop in and worship with them. You know? It's a brotherhood, sisterhood, a fellowship in that way. He says, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. So here's the messenger Epaphroditus or the carrier Epaphroditus that took their gift 
took their aid and brought it to Paul. This is key in the whole controversy too. Okay? So I'll bring this up right here. We'll, Lord willing, talk a lot more about it probably tonight and answer a lot of questions. But there have been controversies over the years about churches uh, pooling their funds together as a group of churches and then, then sending it you know, via one church with sponsoring churches or a sponsoring church of other churches sending it then to the missionary, to the preacher. Or sending their funds to a missionary society, an organization, an institution, not a church, but an office, if you will. And through that office, the funds then get wired, directed, dispersed to the missionary. In all of those cases, we see something different than what we actually read here. What we actually read here is very simple. The church at Philippi sent it by way of a carrier straight to Paul. And that carrier wasn't an organization, and that carrier wasn't another church. That carrier was a person. <laughs> this was, you know, this is direct mail, if you will. Epaphroditus straight to Paul. He also says that it was a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, what, what do those phrases remind you of? They remind you of prayers. They remind you of Old Testament sacrifices even. They remind you of what the New Testament talks about in regard to worship and singing even, praying, etc., in that this is an act of worship. This is an act of, of sacrifice spiritually in service to God. In Romans, we're told that we're to be a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, here's one of the ways that we're willing to give in support of the preaching of the gospel. That we make that sacrifice financially, or whether it be by other aid we can give, we make that sacrifice of our own means and goods and abilities for the furtherance of the preaching of the gospel. And then finally there he says that God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This is a Bible principle throughout. Remember what Abraham told Isaac when they didn't take a sacrifice? And Isaac said, where's the sacrifice at, Dad? <laughs> Abraham had a really, a really, I think, God-given reply. Wise wisdom beyond probably his own understanding when he said, God will provide. God will provide. And we see that principle throughout the Bible with God's people. God's always encouraging His people one way or another in various forms to trust in Him that He will provide. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Matthew 6.33 And that was after talking about the things we tend to worry about. Food, clothing, you know, etc. 
Don't worry about those things so much. God knows you need those things. God will provide those things. Paul reassuring Philippi, you've made a sacrifice. Maybe you have, if it was a real sacrifice, you felt the hurt of it. You see, I think we have a tendency to want to give out of our abundance, which really doesn't constitute sacrifice. By definition, sacrifice should hurt a little. Sacrifice should be recognized as a loss. Does that make sense? And so even in feeling that loss, Paul is reassuring them, God will supply what you need. God will supply what you need. Huge principles for any church to know and also for any individual to know. These are all things that are applicable to individuals. And so often as preachers, we fail you and we preach about the things that apply to individuals in this text. But this is him talking to a local group of Christians as a congregation. So what is the local church to do according to the Scriptures? Well, I can tell from this that they are to support the preaching of the gospel. And not in this text alone. There are many other texts that could uh, vouch for that. I want to look at a couple of key ones uh, this morning. Keep your, your finger maybe there in Philippians 4 because we're going to come right back to it. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where, where actually Kenneth is teaching on this in the auditorium class, uh, getting into this part of the text in particular. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9... Uh, beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war, uh, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? So he's making the point like, do Barnabas and I not have a right to be paid for the work that we do? Verse 9, he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written that he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we re reap your material things? Oh, well, he's making some pretty good points here, isn't he? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? So he's pointing out there are others who are being paid. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endured all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. You know, so much of the time that Paul was preaching, he was also still making tents so that he didn't have to have, you know, payment, if you will, from the church. Verse 13, he says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things in the temple? Well, this goes back to Old Testament principle. And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now, I want you to take home that verse right there. Those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. That's what he's been building up to, is really to make that statement. You don't muzzle the ox while it treads the grain. A soldier doesn't go to war paying for the war himself. That's not what he does, does he? No, he gets paid to go to war. The farmer doesn't labor in the field and not expect to eat of the fruit. <laughs> it's not how it works. So those 
who preach the gospel should live by the gospel. Now, I say that to say this. If we want to affect the spreading of the gospel into new places, further into old places, continually into the same places, How did God say that the gospel was going to get to people? By preaching. By preaching. Which means we've got to support the preaching of the gospel. Or it won't happen. I've read a number of studies here lately that are showing the decline of churches in America in particular. That decline is happening for a number of reasons. But one of the concerning things to many in regard to the numbers, just the sheer numbers, and so much of this is combining many different religious groups and not necessarily one group, if you will. But the principle seems to hold true across the board. But the decline of preachers is sharp. What happens when there are no more preachers? Would Paul be concerned about that? I believe so. Should we be concerned about that? I believe so. And it's easy for us sometimes here in the North Alabama area to get, you know, sidetracked away from that because we live in an area where there's an abundance of preachers. An abundance of gospel meetings, gospel teaching. But overall, numbers would indicate that preachers are declining. He goes on in verses 15 and 16, he says, But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Y'all may not know this about me since you've only known me for a little while, but I'm not a real outgoing person. Now you chuckle all you want to. But I'm really not. At, at, at my heart, I'm an introvert. I could stay in a man cave most of the time and I'd be all right. I believe God's given me the ability, though, to work with people. And it's kind of a strange thing. I kind of feel like it's my thorn in my flesh. <laughs> because it just feels unnatural a lot of times. And I have to feel like I'm pushing myself out there against what my inner self really wants to do. But I can't tell you the number of times I've thought about that last verse I just read. 
Because what it really would boil down to with me is, I don't know how I could stand before God in judgment and answer the question, if I were to stop doing what I'm doing, especially preaching. If God asked me, Lance, why did you quit preaching? Every answer I would come up with would be selfish. Every answer would be selfish. And so ultimately, whether it's with my arm twisted behind my back, or whether it's with gratitude and thanks to God, I have to say what Paul said, Woe am I, you know, it would be horrible of me if I didn't preach the gospel. If I didn't preach the gospel. And I say that to say that we, we, we really need, we need more preachers of the gospel. We need that. And further to that, we need to support the preaching of the gospel. We need to support the preaching of the gospel. Because if it were to be that a young man or any man would say that I can't be a preacher because I can't support my family. Well, there's a possibility of two failures there. One of which is that maybe that man has too selfish of an idea of what it is to support his family. That's possible. And wants too much in this life. But a second possibility is that we as the local church have failed in our duty to support the aid and the necessities and the need of not muzzling the ox while he treads out the grain, of not sending a soldier to war on his own expense, of not restricting the farmer from eating of the fruit when he's plowed. Because those who preach the gospel should be able to live from the gospel, Paul says. Now, I hope you understand I'm not throwing stones. This is also one of those where, like I said the other week about, I'm not preaching for a raise. I'm not preaching for a raise, and I'm certainly not preaching to get fired, and please don't send me to Africa. I'm not ready for that. <laughs> I'm trying to preach what we're reading here in the Scriptures for all of our benefit. Mine too. Because I need to be ready to go to Africa. I need to be ready to do whatever it is that I need to do to help support the preaching of the gospel. And finally, this morning, just quickly, I also want to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Because when Paul writes the 2 Corinthian letter, some things have changed. And there's a different kind of outlook on what's going on in supporting the preaching of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 5, Paul says, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you may be exalted because I preach the gospel of God to you free of charge? So again, you know, there's been a time in which he preached at Corinth and they didn't pay him anything. So then notice what he says in verse 8. I robbed other churches. I was Paul a robber. 
No. He's making a point. I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. Now this is also a very important verse in understanding, well, how should all this work? And what does the Scripture support in what happens here? So here, Paul was taking no wages from Corinth, but preaching at Corinth, but he was taking wages from other churches. It's kind of the definition of doing missionary work, ultimately. And one of the examples of a church that sent the aid to him is what we've been reading in Philippians 4. And how did they send it to him? They sent it to him direct via a carrier, Epaphroditus. And so some have taken this verse 8 and tried to turn it into something saying, well, it must have been a bunch of churches sent it to the First Missionary Society and then they sent it to Paul. Well, that's, that's taking a big time leap because he doesn't say anything like that there. Or that a bunch of churches sent it to one church and then sent it to Paul. And it doesn't say anything like that there either. His point was to the church at Corinth that while he was working with them, he wasn't doing it for the money. And that they needed to be aware of the reality of that because it was still costing something for him to be there preaching the gospel. So what is the local church to do according to the Scriptures? Support the preaching of the gospel. Support the preaching of the gospel. And it's one of those things that it's not ever going to be easy, I don't think. And you all know that here. You, you went for a span of time even locally without officially having a, a preacher. And those who are older have been here through several changes in that regard. And I'm sure you've had changes through the years and men you've supported in foreign places and things like that. And I'm sure the elders here could speak to us about the challenges of communicating with people afar and trying to keep up with what's going on and be confident that it's, you know, the aid is going to good use and all of those things. It's a lot. So let me make one final teaching point on that. When a work like that has a lot involved, there's a lot of opportunity for excuses. And so I would challenge each of us as individuals and even together as a congregation for us to be sure that we're pushing the excuses aside and see that the local church is to support the preaching of the gospel and whatever we can do to find a way to do that. Scripturally, we need to do it. Cast the excuses aside. And maybe one of the things you need to do as an individual is to purpose greater in your heart the intent to support the preaching of the gospel. And just have a bigger place in your own heart for that. And give more thought to that. And say, you know what, I'm not a preacher, but I can help the preaching of the gospel by supporting good preachers. And you want to do that. You want to do that. And that good, positive attitude is needed by individuals in order for the church collectively to succeed too. Well, this has not been a lesson to try to get you to come to Christ. But that's what the preaching of the gospel is all about. The gospel message in a nutshell is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came to the world to die on the cross of Calvary for the sins of all of mankind. And that includes you.
and me. And Jesus said, He that believes, believes on Him, and is baptized, buried with Him, through baptism, can have their sins remitted and rise to hope of everlasting life. Is that what you've done today? If not, why not? What are you waiting on? That's what Paul was told. We've been talking about Paul and his work as a preacher. He was told, what are you waiting on? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Let's do it. If you need the prayers of the church, we'll pray with you and for you. God has promised that He's faithful to forgive us if we'll confess and turn from our sins. And if we can help you do that today, we want to do that as well. Won't you come while we stand and sing?